Welcome to Siblinghood of Recovery. Hello, beautiful recovery people. It's Angie Reno here. Welcome back. Hope you had a great week. Lots happening in May, end of May and June, graduations, new stages of life. It's so exciting. Summer's coming. So all you parents out there, are you ready for a break? Well, it's kind of interesting because we do still have the hybrid and some people are, are working from home and the kids are back to school. Others are not. You know, it's, it's going to be an interesting summer. I'm ready personally. I am ready to uh, also take a break, going to take a break over the summer and disconnect. And uh, I'm very excited about that. So what did a recap last week on grief? I had a finding a jewel. It is a podcast entitled A Slight Change of Plans. Maya Shunker is the host. I love it. I just love it. The podcast that I want to recommend, I'll put a link in the show notes, is entitled Lessons from a Grief Therapist. And Maya interviews Julia Samuel. She is one of the world's leading grief therapists, and she's excellent. And there's so many things in this podcast that are linked to 12-step mantra ideas, you know, those constant, hey, keep this in mind, the daily readings. I just loved it. So hope you can listen to that. And also my friend, Buddy C, who I interviewed, he recommended a book entitled The Grief Recovery Handbook. I'll put a link in my show notes. It was written by an individual who had over 40 years in AA. Great read. So I'm going to put those two things as resources. And as always, I do want to just level set. My intent is to talk about what it's like for me as a mom in recovery, emotional recovery, as I support growth in myself, with my family, with my relationship with both of my sons, one of whom is in recovery. And his journey is his journey. I absolutely love his journey. I respect his journey. This is not his story. My journey is my journey as a parent and how I can become a better person simply through healing my own self, going through my own recovery process and doing the work. Man, (laughs) I got to do the work. Oh, there's so many things, so many things. So this podcast will center on no more secrets. As I go through this recovery journey, every single time that I approach this shame concept always comes down to stigma and secrets. And I see so many beautiful, powerful women who are moms who, when they enter this journey, they're, I don't know the right word, but it gets daunting, right? And I want to like hold up a mirror to them so they can see the beauty, the strength, the resilience that I see. And I get it. Sometimes, sometimes they're not ready to see it. Sometimes they're so entrenched in the hypervigilance that comes when you just are starting to gather all this information about addiction or dysfunctional behavior or challenges with mental health. I totally understand it, you know? But I also want to recognize the courage of the parents who do take on this journey and who do have self-reflection enough to get better, to heal themselves. 
Because a better you, I've said this before, is the best gift you can give your child and your other children, the siblings within your family. So I want to get into secrets. I found, I had to do a lot of research. I found a Columbia Business School research study. This is a big one. It's huge. It's great. You'll never read it. (laughs) So I'm going to summarize it for you. We're all busy. We have so much to do. So this is entitled The Experience of Secrecy. The authors are Michael L. Slipian, Jin Suk Chun, Malia Mason. The concept that they approached with this study, the keywords are secrecy, concealment, mind-wandering, relationships, well-being. And what's interesting is that concealment tends towards an obsession of that thought. So in this study, they they recognize that mind-wandering is a byproduct of keeping a secret. This also ties into another study entitled, Is It Bad to Have Secrets? Cognitive Preoccupation as a Toxic Element of Secrecy. Now, this was published in the International Journal of Clinical and Health Psychology in 2012. The authors there are Joyce Moss, she's with Radbud University, and Andreas Weissmaya at Tilburg University, as well as Marcel Van Essen and Annalise Aquarius. All of these authors are based in the Netherlands. What they did is they studied 287 HIV positive individuals and how they kept that secret from their partners. And then they did conclude that the cognitive preoccupation is a toxic element of secrecy. Tying back to the Columbia University, they did find, the authors did find that concealment directly impacts mind wandering and mind wandering influences health. Just reading from the implications for secrecy and health, the authors from Columbia University state, a host of work suggests secrecy is associated with negative health outcomes. Secrecy has been associated with depression, anxiety, and poor physical health. They go on to state that we demonstrate that having a current versus former secret predicted increased frequency of mind wandering to those secrets outside of the concealment settings. So in other words, concealment is one aspect, mind wandering is another. And the mind wandering predicted lower well-being outcomes. The conclusion states from the authors from Columbia University, we find that active concealment is rare relative to the many times the mind wanders to thoughts of the secret and frequency of mind wandering to but not concealing secrets predicts lower well-being. Both of these studies, it's not the secret, it's the preoccupation of the secret. All right, I'm going to bring in one more study. So this is from authors who are based in Sweden, and they are tied to the Family and Development Research Center, Institute of Psychology at University of Lausanne, Switzerland. And again, I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. This is going to be my podcast where how many names can I pronounce wrong? Okay, developmental change and secrecy during middle adolescence links with alcohol use and perceived controlling parenting. The authors, Sophie Barat, Stin Van Pettigem, Jean-Philippe Antoinetti, Jillian Albert Zintzman, or Znitman, Gregoire Zimmerman. 
Again, apologies if I mispronounced. In this study, over two years, the authors have a sample of 473 Swiss adolescents, and they complete a self-report questionnaire specifically about secrecy, alcohol use, and perceived controlling parenting. The results indicate that the development of adolescent secrecy is associated with the development of their drinking habits and perceptions of family relationships in dynamic ways. Okay, adolescents are going to be secretive about stuff that they know that they probably shouldn't be doing. And my thought immediately led to, okay, how is that countered? Is it open communication? Is it parental controlling? What is the quote unquote concept of controlling parenting? I've spoken before about the helicopter mom, quote unquote. And what's interesting is this study gets into a different concept of how the adolescent's behavior influences the parent's parenting style. And I'm seeing much more research on this in that it is a give and take, which I do like. I feel that our relationships as humans truly are a give and take. You know, we do have those examples of one person being dominant and influencing a family system. 100%. I've seen that thousands of times over. But the study goes into something about how the adolescent's behavior can switch a parent to be more disconnected. But equally, that parent's expression of how they feel about the adolescent's behavior is very key to establishing future connection. So the authors quote, it has been longitudinally shown that when parents reacted in a controlling manner to their child's disclosure, i.e. of drinking or participating in alcohol abuse, by being cold and rejecting the child's feelings, adolescents therefore felt more controlled, which in turn triggered them to keep more secrets, end quote. I have to self-reflect. When I found out my child was engaged with drug use, did I react well? Not at all. And therefore the chaos ensued. Now, having entered into recovery, and having had a similar experience in another situation, my reaction was completely different because I had been coached by treatment center professionals and I had been through family therapy and I had joined a 12-step program and I had joined a parental support group. The cool thing about the parental support group is that I'm in a safe room where I am completely able to talk about my fears, my anxiety, my ability to not react well, my inability to control my emotions when I get upset about the current situation of how do I handle this this entire new world that I've entered, right? And looking back on that ability to share with that group of parents, and this goes back now, I'm approaching a couple years had I not had that, where would I go? Where would I go to express myself? Where would I go to talk about the current situation that I was in, which was dealing with a child who had a substance use disorder? Would that be a secret? And would my mind wander? And would my mind constantly obsess about what's going on? I think so. So I'm tying all this in, right? And I'm I'm looking at what we do as parents when we venture into the world of recovery. Who are we sharing it with? Who are we dialoguing with? This goal of addressing 
and what's going on with our family, if we have to keep that a secret, if we have to walk to some preconceived notion of family success, then that challenge becomes a secret. And then our minds begin to wander and our minds begin to be obsessed with the problems that we have. Thus begets the downward spiral of self-care. Here's what I do know. Every treatment center that is worth their salt, that is worth their weight in gold, will encourage the parent from day one, day one of conversation. The child is not even through the doors yet. The treatment center will say, it is a family endeavor. Your child's sobriety, your child's mental health, your child's success is a part of the family system engagement. The treatment centers that I was a part of, the encouragement to get into a 12-step program and to have my own self-care regime, which included therapy, was on the table. As I approached this whole new world of recovery, I had more and more conversations about how are you doing? What I loved about that, looking back now, is it was a steady mantra and the encouragement to expand my network of parents who are also going through this allowed me to converse. It allowed me to let that challenge that I felt that I was facing by myself, that challenge of being quote unquote alone. It allowed me to let that challenge be something I felt I was up to meeting. The coolest thing that you can do for your kid is to not look at their challenge with addiction, their challenge with mental health as a secret. Here's another benefit that leaders of treatment centers know as well, is the better you get, the less codependent you are on your child's success. Going back to the Family and Development Research Center study from the Institute of Psychology in Switzerland, how that child reacted to the parents questioning where they were, it influenced the parents' reaction. So imagine you're trying to address a challenge with a child and the child is becoming more secretive. Now reflect, now turn the mirror on yourself. What if you know that there is potentially a challenge? And what if you approach that child saying, you know what, we can handle this together. So many people have this happen. This isn't anything to be ashamed of. This doesn't have to be a family secret. We can walk this road together. Even if you say those words, they feel different. They feel different from, I can't believe this is happening. We've never had this in our family. And pick any other reaction that I know I might have had <laughs> to be completely transparent, simply because I had not been in the world of recovery before. You know, I was talking with a friend of mine this weekend, and I was like, I wish we could address intergenerational trauma in the parenting books before people even have kids. It would be a vital shift into raising children because it would be addressing secrets. <laughs> and that's the irony because so many of us have those intergenerational challenges where this happened, but in this part of the family, but we don't talk about it. And that gets back to well-being. When you join 12 Steps, one of the sayings that you'll hear is you're only as sick as your secrets. Honesty, including self analysis, self-inventory is huge in 12 steps. And it's not easy. 
I'll mention another podcast, Rich Roll interviewed Terry Crews, and it's it's a really powerful interview. And that comes up, you're only as sick as your secrets. What I love so much about connecting the 12 steps to research work all over the globe too, is that these sayings and the methodology of the 12 steps has been proven scientifically, granted, not necessarily connected. It's not like the researchers are going, I'm going to research on the 12 steps. But scientifically, you have researchers looking at the impact of secrecy on health. And it goes right back to you're only as sick as your secrets. So if you're in the midst of finding out your son, your daughter, your family member has an addiction challenge or their anxiety and depression has led to self-medication, don't keep it a secret. Do something about it. Get help for your child, for yourself, and join a community that understands. This is one of my favorite things to talk about because it's open, it's honest, it's transparent. And uh, again, it comes down to find your people. There's so many others out there that are dealing with what we're going through. And you know what? We're going to be okay. All right. That's what I got for this week. As usual, everything will be in the show notes. I wish you a great week ahead. Hit up my website, siblinghoodofrecovery.com. This is Angie Reno, and I'll talk to you later. Later.